Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, you've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. We want people to kind of notice the small things and really be able to stop and smell the roses when they can and really appreciate nature that's in their lives. The nature that's in their life or the nature that's in their fridge. When you're cooking, make it kind of a ritual. Become more tuned to these kind of things and notice them more. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. doing? Good morning. I'm doing very well. Beautiful morning in the fall. Love fall so much. Yes, we made a pumpkin olive oil cake last night and it was so good. I just had some for breakfast. It's like, you haven't made a pumpkin olive oil cake yet. Very moist and fallish. Oh, that sounds so good. So you don't notice the olive taste in the Mm -mm. oil? You don't notice? The olive oil is just like the fat and the, it's so moist, but no. I guess the pumpkin and the pumpkin spices sort of take over the olive oil. Speaking of spices, I made ginger kefir this morning. It was fabulous. And I sort of on purpose have held off on using the ginger all summer. 
not because I don't want it, because it's just such a special fall flavor. So this was my first ginger kefir of the season, and it was delightful. So next time you're over, you'll have to have some. What other fall things are you up to? Are you dyeing anything? Are you planting anything? Well, yes, all of the above. It's really good time to be transplanting the perennials, like, you know, dividing up the flowers, things like the um, purple comb flower, for instance, and black-eyed Susans. I've got so many of those. So I can divide those up and plant them around in my little mini meadows that I've been cultivating all summer by not mowing. And so that next spring, they'll have more flowers in them. So that's fun. And also, this is the time of year I love to pull out the dye pot. When I see the goldenrod everywhere, it really inspires me to start foraging these beautiful fall flowers and playing around with my dyes. You've got not only the goldenrod, but the black walnuts are falling. They make a wonderful dye. And all the late summer flowers that pretty soon here, the frost is going to get them. So I want to start harvesting those and using them in the dye pot. Things like the calendula, marigold, of course, the black-eyed Susans and the zinnias and all these wonderful things. Yeah. The way that you go about your natural dyeing is so fun. And you're so, um, well, it's the way you go about lots of things, cooking and gardening. <laughs> it's just very, you kind of follow your gut on it and you just experiment and things don't work and then things do work. And it's really fun to watch. Yes. I've never been a person that was really very good at following a recipe closely or kind of any step-by-step guide to anything. And, you know, there are times when that really does get me into trouble. But in my old age, <laughs> I have come to accept that it's just my style. And sometimes it works really well. So in terms of the dyeing, the natural dyeing with the flowers, you know, I follow the directions. I certainly follow safety directions and things that are really fundamental to getting good results, like, you know, preparing the fabric with the mordants and this sort of thing. But in terms of what to use for what color and what amounts and how long and all that, I really play around with that and get my own results. And that's, to me, is the fun of it, to your point. And I also do that with food. So yeah. Yeah. And for anyone who's interested, you did teach a Skillshare session in the Almanac last month, August? This summer? Yes, it was in August. Wow. And that is accessible. And all of our skill shares and past workshops and past retreat recordings are all available in the Almanac. And the Almanac is open for enrollment if you want to join us there. So that's just a little shout out to that. And in the meantime, if you are not ready to join us on our community platform, but you do want to be in the loop, you can sign up for our newsletter. That is a really good place to stay in touch with Lady Farmer and everything that's going on and Good Dirt podcast episodes. We always publish sort of roundups of recently published episodes and if you follow our newsletter. So you can sign up for our newsletter and learn more about the Almanac membership at the links in our show notes. Now, speaking of plants and fall and doing fun things with plants, today's guests are really fun. And I really loved interviewing them. Such a fun duo. Chris Young and Susan Ottaviano, co-authors of The Green Witch's Guide to Magical Plants and Flowers, 26 Love Spells from Apples to Zinnias, is a practical guide on how to bring more love and contentment into your life using elements of nature. Chris believes that all plants are magical. He's a lifelong gardener whose acclaimed garden, Tiny Sir, is a certified wildlife habitat. 
His garden writing has been featured in such publications as West Coast Magazine, Country Living, and L.A. Parent. Susan is an artist, performer, and a songwriter. Her career has taken her from the recording studio as the lead singer for the band Book of Love, which is an awesome band, by the way. I looked them up. To this photo studio as a food stylist for clients like Bon Appetit and Grey Goose. Talking with these two green witches about gardens, food, pollinators, and plant magic was a delightful way to spend an afternoon, and we think you'll enjoy it as well. So here's Chris Young and Susan Ottaviano authors of The Green Witch's Guide to Magical Plants and Flowers. Hi, you guys. I'm Chris Young, and I wrote the Green Witch's Guide to Magical Plants and Flowers. And it's a book that Susan and I have been working on over the past few years. I'm Susan Ottaviano, and I'm the illustrator and recipe developer for the Green Witch's Guide to Magical Plants and Flowers. Chris and I are so happy to have been able to collaborate on this project. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Well, tell us a little bit about the background. And Chris, you can go first. Like, what is your background and what led to your interest in this and the writing of this book? Well, I'm kind of a lifelong gardener. I had 10 years of living in New York where I got kind of pulled away from that at one point. But ever since I was a little kid, I've been obsessed with plants and gardening. And when I lived in Indianapolis with my parents, I used to go out into the woods and something that I would never do now and <laughs> take plants that I loved and plant them in my parents' yard. Because I didn't know what nurseries were. I didn't know how you got plants. He's saying that he stole plants. <laughs> <laughs> I stole well, from nature. <laughs> I did take good care of them, though. So I, so I spent my whole life gardening. I've always been into plants. And Susan and I have been friends for some 30 years, and we just have these common interests. And sometime during, like, I think just before COVID, we were hanging out and we we're like, what could we do together? And that's kind of when this book was born. Okay. And where did y'all meet? Uh, we met years and years ago. Susan is in a band called Book of Love. She's a lead singer. And I kind of discovered them when I was in college, right when they came out. We became friends pretty much straight off the bat. I saw them in a few shows and was like, this is the greatest band ever. <laughs> we met in Chicago, so in middle America. And Chris lives in L.A. now and I live in New York. So we sort of covered coast to coast. We've got the country covered. Oh, that's cool. So what about your background, Susan, that, that led you to this? Well, I'm an artist. Like Chris said, I was also in a band and I went to art school. So that was my first love. And I was in a band for a long time. And I've also been working as a food stylist for the last 20 years. So I've gotten involved in recipe development and styling food for magazines and TV. Chris and I, you know, we've always just kind of talked about the idea of working on a book together, not working on a book, just working on a little project together. And that's cut how this started, like a little germ of an idea. And it just really grew from there. Then we, I think we were going to write a little children's book with illustrations of flowers because Chris actually did a children's book about six years ago. And we were maybe going to try to, to do something like that. Yeah, I think it was just going to be an A to Z of flowers. Really simple. 
And then I had been exposed to green witchcraft in the 90s, in my 20s. I worked at this agency, this talent agency. It was my first job and it was really stressful. And my boss was very demanding. And we had this woman who worked in a kitchen. Like this was a fancy agency. And so, you know, the big agents would get their bialis and their coffee served to them by this woman. So he would have me march into the kitchen and get his bialy and coffee. And I would just be almost in tears. And she would say, here's some things you can do. She turned out to be a kitchen witch or a green witch. And she was like, well, here's some things you can do. She pulled out a little pot and burned some onion skins, kind of like saging. It had the same effect of saging. So she was saging me with onion skins. And listen, all I know is that it did calm me down. And I always, it always kept with me. And I always was interested in green witchcraft. And so as we started to develop this book, I was like, what if every flower had a spell? And what if everything was to draw love into your life? It just kept going from there. And then what if we used mindfulness? And then what if we used, you know, and so the book just took a life of its own. I love this so much. Who is the green witch? You say the green witch's guide. So who is that? And you touched on it a little bit, but I've, n- I've never heard this term. We say two green witches. So we're both green witches. Oh, two green witches. And what is that? What's a green witch? Green witches, it's not as heavy as like what you would normally think of as witchcraft. It's its not not serious. It's using nature. It's using the magical powers of nature, the essences of different plants, of different stones, different moon cycles of the sun. It's trying to focus because everything is about intention with any witchcraft, I suppose. So it's about focusing the intentions using the power of the plants to achieve X, Y, or Z. And with our book, we're trying to do it to all achieve love, you know, and it's not manipulative. They're not manipulative love spells. They're spells to just sort of bring love into your universe and the love of a friend, the love of a lover, the love of your cat, all that. So to teach you to balance your life, balance and enhance your life and to be more grounding, to ground yourself. That's what we're looking to do with this book. So is it different from herbalism or is it the same? Like, how is it? It's the same. It's mad. They call it magical herbalism. Okay. It's sort of the same. It's ma- It's called magical herbalism. I love it. Yeah. So if you know about herbs, you pretty much know green witchcraft. <laughs> so cool. Magical herbalism is probably the number one. That's exactly what it is. I have this old book that I use as my Bible. Do you guys know this book, The Encyclopedia of Magical Herbs? No. I recommend it. It's kind of my Bible. I use it for a lot of my research. I was an English major, so research is like near and dear to my heart. Oh, that's wonderful. We give the magical properties for each of our 26 plants. So that's really the focus of our chapter, the magical properties of each of these herbs and flowers. And with that, the spells and recipes bath products and things like that. Yeah, we call it witchcrafty because we have so many crafts. You know, we make soaps and candles and facial oils. In addition to the food that Susan's come up with, that's amazing. So the recipes in it, besides the oils and the bath products and stuff, is actually food. Food that you eat to take on the properties of the plant or just delicious food. Basically, only like I would say maybe 20% of our herbs or flowers are edible. So um, the ones that are edible, like basil, parsley. We have regular recipes. We also have tea recipes for things like fever fusel and rose and apples, right? We have recipes for apples. That's one of our. So if it's an edible, one of our flowers or plants, we we usually have a recipe. Yeah, we make sure you can eat it if it's edible. (laughs) 
So I'm curious, what are the magical properties of apple? Well, apples, uh, well, like I said, everything is has to do with love and the magical properties of apples also extend to, let's see, what else? Protection. Well, yeah, because the main thing, I don't know why I'm even looking it up, because everything that we, all the ones that we use in here, their main essence is love. So they call apple like the love fruit. And then we have the sort of the primary and the secondary things for, you know, like basils for love, but it's also for protection. And harmony and love and prosperity. Yeah, I've been, I've got basil next to me because I've, I've been like really thinking a lot about basil lately. So I can tell you all about basil. <laughs> oh, please do. Please tell us about basil because we, you know, it's, it's really abundant right now. So let's talk about basil. Oh yeah. Well, we have a little thing in our book where we say basil, basil, fresh and sweet, allow our angry hearts to meet. So it's an herb that's known for easing tension. And we have a great pesto recipe that Susan came up with that you can serve to your beloved if there's some tension going on. But there's other things you can do with basil. If you have problems sleeping, put some basil under your pillow and that will help take away nightmares because it's a protective plant. And to bring prosperity into your house, if you've got some dried basil just in a, a spice jar, put some of that under your doormat and that will bring prosperity. You can also grow it inside in the winter to bring luck into your house too. Oh, wonderful. Little did we know. Every <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you know what? One thing I forgot was if you place it in, especially in places like Italy and Spain, it's known that if you place basil on your doorstep or on your windowsill, that you're saying that you're available and ready for love. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> Susan, why don't you tell us about a favorite recipe of yours and a plant that it features and all about that plant? Well, we've been making some things with strawberries lately because strawberries are really in season. We have a, a wonderful strawberry tart recipe that's delicious with fresh strawberries. We have it in a vegan crust, but you could also buy a frozen crust that's not vegan. And we've been making this strawberry vodka that we've been serving Ooh, at our book signings lately. And that's marinated in the vodka for a week with a little simple syrup. And it's, it's delicious. We've been serving that. I have a new recipe, Susan, that I haven't told you about. What is it? It's a strawberry basil lemon water. You slice up a lemon, you whole and half eight strawberries, and then you take a cup of basil, put it in a pitcher, let it sit overnight. And then the next day, it's just amazing. I tried it this week. That's really great. That sounds really, we could also make, because I was thinking of making popsicles. Strawberry basil popsicles. And you can put the fruit in it. <laughs> Sorry, you guys. We're just hatching ideas right here on this your show. This is perfect. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Fantastic. But the winter strawberries that you get, they're just, they're not good. And they put a lot of water in the recipe when you make it. And then if you make this tart now, and that's in our book, this time of year with these fresh strawberries, it's just a wonderful, refreshing thing. Yeah. It's just so much more flavorful when they're ripe and ready. Yeah, I, I imagine like the fresh things like from their garden or from the farmer's market and the in-season things, because that's, I would think the in-season things are the ones that have the most potency. They are. It's If you're catching your plant at the height of its potency, you're going to get even more flavor and you're going to get even more power out of it. You know, it almost seems logical that when you get it right at its height, more passion. More passion. More passion from your berries. <laughs> We're really big into berries around here at the moment. The strawberries I have in my garden have finished, but now we're getting a lot of blackberries and the wild ones, you know, the black raspberries. Yeah, I love those. 
And there's a native berry. I wonder if you're familiar with it's called the aronia berry. Also, I think it's known as a chokeberry. I've heard of chokeberries. I haven't heard of aronia berry. What's it like? What's it compared to? It's a nice little firm purple berry. And it's a little bit astringent, not very sweet. So, so it's a little bit like elderberry? Well, it's bigger than the elderberry. And you can eat the aronia berry raw. You're not supposed to eat elderberries raw. So I think they're hard to compare because, you know, you have to cook elderberries and that ends up being a syrup or something. I think that would be good for making a syrup yeah, I, with, right? Yeah, because you want to, you know, you want to sweeten it up a little bit. I've been mixing it with the other berries so I can get it in because they say that it's super high in, you know, the antioxidants and say it's like even more potent than like the blueberries. I mean, everybody says, you know, eat blueberries are so good for you with this aronia berries. Even better. Even better, supposedly. So I was going to ask you all if you, if you were familiar with it and I sort of need some ideas of things to do with it besides syrup because it is like on its own. It's got a wild flavor yeah, that people kind of aren't used to. Well, I like what you're saying about adding it to other berries like in the chart. Like I, oh, that's also what I, I we want to encourage people to do is to use yeah. what they have available and to also encourage like intuitive cooking. I would try a little bit of that in a chart. Like I'll, you know, when peaches are kind of on the, you know, they're, they're ending the season then add the berries to the peach and tart so that the flavors will come together and it will be not so much of one thing. And I think that the same thing, I think you should try to add that to like a, a chart or maybe a yogurt with other berries that have different flavors. So it might just kind of accent the flavor that you have. Yeah. And, you know, the foods are cultivated these days you know, to appeal to, you know, our, our taste buds, our, our sort of modern taste buds that have kind of been, what, spoiled a little bit? Well, they've gotten really used to high fructose corn syrup. Yeah. Well, that's why you should experiment with a little lemon. I mean, adding some acid to it is is something that changes the tartness and it can add the sugar, salt and acid can change the flavor of things. So I encourage people to experiment and taste. I didn't know that about the acid. Yeah, I didn't know that about the acid either. That's a really, really good tip. Yeah, you can add a little vinegar to something and it can change oh. the whole flavor. It's, it's very interesting. Did you ever read the book, hear about the book Salt, Fat, Heat, Acid? I have it on my shelf. I have not read it. I have read that book. I love that book. It really teaches you so much about when you think something's not salty enough, it might not really be that. It's like creating the, these flavors and then you add a little vinegar to this tomato soup and all of a sudden it balances the salt. So there's a lot of very interesting things about creating these flavor profiles. We really encourage people to think through what we've suggested and to try their own thing. That's how you really learn how to do something, you know, try a different flower, try a different flower in your tea, as long as it's, as Chris will always say, make sure that, you know, it's edible and not poisonous, but try a different flavor. I love what he's saying about basil in a cocktail. Like the other day, Chris, I was saying, why don't we try basil and something else as, oh, granita. Yeah, yeah. We should do some of our strawberry things with strawberry basil and some other lemon basil. We could make an ice with that. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's I like, like a cocktail. We could make that. that. We could make granita with that. Done. <laughs> I love hearing you guys collaborate right here. <laughs> I know, yeah, it's I'm, so cool. Yeah, you're you're right. right here. <laughs> so Susan, you mentioned food styling and photography, but was that really all, like you sound like such a, creative recipe developer. I mean, what other kind of background or training do you have in that, if any? Well, so I am a food stylist. I went back to culinary school and trained 
a little bit and then I apprenticed on the job. But I've been a food stylist for about 20 years. And I do, I don't know if I already said that, that I do uh, food for magazines like Bon Appetit or Epicurious and cookbooks. So this sort of fell right in line. Drawing the recipes is a lot like making them side for cookbooks. So it's, it's kind of all full circle. Plus you're Italian, so you can cook. <laughs> oh yeah we can do everything do y'all have gardens or and where do you source your things do you forage talk a little bit about where your things come from when you're using them well i do have i have a garden here in lower canyon we and it's pretty good size it's it's a hill garden as you might imagine because we're in the hills i tend to make sure that all my stuff is organic or heirloom i do have a nursery that i love who doesn't use chemicals and they harden plants out in nature. They're not done in greenhouses. It's a place out here in California called Annie's Annuals. I know that they're nationwide, like if you go to annie'sannuals.com. And they do tons of California natives, which for me is really important. The main thing about my garden is that it's a habitat garden. The second part is I try to make it really pretty. And the third part is I try to make it have good scents. And the fourth part is I try to have plants and flowers that are protective on top of being pretty and attractive to hummingbirds. <laughs> I get all, a lot of stuff from Annie's, to be honest. And then there's a local nursery that sells seeds to the Theodore Payne Foundation is a big one that I like. I just try to make sure everything's clean and organic. Do you use a lot of perennials? You mentioned natives. I know that, you know, lots of times natives are going to be. I try to, you know, in, in the flower beds, I try to have it half and half. I try to have some perennials as my base, but then I love annuals so much. There's so many, especially out here in California, because, you know, we've got California park poppies, we've got clarkias, we've got so many good things that I want to see in the spring. I mean, they're all done now. The garden, right now, all I'm doing is hacking back all the dead stuff <laughs> and trying to make it look organized. But yeah. Chris, tell them about being a pollinator. Yeah, we're a pollinator way station here. I've been growing milkweeds, all kinds of milkweeds for our local monarchs. It took about, honestly, it took about 10 years for them to find my garden. I was really sad because I was like, oh, God, you know, because I know they're in danger. In fact, I think monarchs are in the endangered species list. So I've been on a one man campaign to bring them back. And I think a lot of gardeners have because I hear that they're coming back. And I think that it's because people have made a conscious effort to plant milkweeds and, you know, nectar rich plants for them. So so I am a monarch butterfly way station. <laughs> Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. 
Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. I've also joined the Grow Milkweed effort for the Monarchs. I've, I've introduced several of them just in the last season or two here on my property. And we live in an agricultural preserve. And so we're surrounded by farmland. A lot of that is, you know, hay fields for the, to feed the livestock. They don't want milkweed in these hay fields because it's not good for grazing animals. Yeah, it's it poisonous. Sick. Yeah. So there's a lot of effort out there and around us to get rid of the milkweed. Uh, so I'm trying to counteract that here on my little property. Can I ask a question? Why is it poisonous? Oh, well, it's the butterfly's self-defense. So what happens is they lay their eggs on it and then the caterpillars eat the milkweed and it's not poisonous to them, but it makes them poisonous. So birds will learn really fast if they go and catch a monarch caterpillar that it's going to make them really sick. And so most birds and prey know to avoid the yellow and black striped little worm that can make them so sick. <laughs> so wow. it's their self-defense to use that plant, really. Yeah, but if it's in a hay field and it becomes like rolled up in a hay It'll bale. It'll make the cow sick and yeah. Yeah, so that's the sad truth of an agricultural area. They don't want milkweed around. So anyway, I've got several and I would say the second season I started noticing monarchs. Not a lot, not a ton, but they're here. I saw one just the other day and the milkweed, it takes a season or two to really get going. Yeah, it takes forever to get the milkweed started. And it seems like it takes forever to get the monarchs to find it, but they say that monarchs can smell milkweed from a mile away. <gasps> oh, Isn't that wild. I love that. And then once they're born there, those monarchs will come back. Ideally, if they make it back, they will come back and lay their eggs back on your milkweed. And so you'll get more and more each year. That's what I've seen. Chris, maybe some of the monarchs that are here in my yard or go to LA and end up in your yard. They don't, cl they don't go over the mountains. Oh, really? Well, so they just go straight they south? They go up and down. So the ones you have come up from Canada and then they go straight down to Mexico via your garden. And then the ones on my side stay on the other side of the, of the Rockies and they go up and down. So they do not cross the continent. It's too hard. I think it's too, I mean, they go thousands of miles, but I think that altitude is too much for them. You know, they're pretty fragile little guys considering what they do. Yeah, they're just like little, like little jewels. I know. It's just so sweet. It just, I saw one the other day and it just, it Makes just melted flutter. my heart. It yeah. did. <laughs> yeah. I always say it's like seeing a real fairy in the garden. <laughs> just kind of melted me. I was just like. <gasps> yeah, they're magical. They're truly magical. And I was also so happy that I had a place for him. Yeah. I For me, that's why I do Habitat Garden because it's just, it makes you feel so good when you go out there and all the birds are flitting around and there's butterflies and hummingbirds. So yeah, talking about the pollinators, I've mentioned on the show before, but listeners won't mind. We're converting a lot of our yard over natives and mowing a whole lot less, you know, mowing about 90% less. Oh, that's great. 
Yeah. And we've had several podcast conversations on this topic. And so it's, it's a real thing, a real exciting thing for us here at our little farm in the last couple of seasons. Have you been building meadows? Yes. Oh, yes. you're heroes. We just had an interview a couple of weeks ago with Owen Wormser, who wrote the book Lawns into Meadows. That's a good one. Yeah. So that gives you some really good practical information. We've also interviewed recently Mary Reynolds, who started the ARC movement, Acts of Restorative Kindness, A-R-K. That's the acronym. And the whole thing is like, you know, just giving the land back to the earth. You would love Mary Reynolds if you don't know her already. Oh, yes. I don't know her. And I would because I feel like even with my yard, that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to give it back. You know, it's beautiful. It's it's still I still want it to be beautiful to be in and everything. But I also try to have, you know, even here in L.A., I try to have wild sections of the garden where I don't do anything. Yes. Well, you want to look her up. What's her name again? Mary Reynolds. And she says we need to stop calling ourselves gardeners and call ourselves guardians. She's very radical in that way that even gardening is like some kind of control that we don't actually have. Right. I love that. You're going to love it. Chris has his weekend plans. <laughs> what I'm going to be reading. Yeah, this is all really, really good stuff. But I was going to say that there's this one section right in front of the house. We have a circular driveway in the middle of it was grass. It was just grass. and we Wasted space. Wasted space. So, you know, I started hearing about this and learning about all this. So that was what we started out with, just that little the little thing. Which is good because you could control that. It's, you know, you've got boundaries on it. You can like do whatever you want and then see what works. Yes. And... What's amazing to me is how quickly you see life just flooding into the space. And we had a visitor that drove up last summer and it was all in full glory, you know, all the flowers and the butterflies and the bees. And it was just like, it was so active. It was so vibrant. And the, the visitor pulled up and got out of the car and his jaw just dropped up. And he said, what is going on here? Yeah. And I said, well, we've got this project. We're just, we're planting natives and we're just letting it go. And his comment was, well, it's working. Yeah. It's amazing how quickly the pollinators and the insects will find it. We put in a little pond because I wanted to have a natural water source for wildlife. And it's a circulating pond, so it's not stagnant. Otherwise, you know, it'd be Mosquito City. But we had dragonflies in like a year. Boom. And I wouldn't have thought that there'd be any dragonflies anywhere near me because it's so dry here. Oh, speaking of magical creatures, yes. Oh, we have, do you have the little blue damsels? Yes. Those oh, are wow. my favorites. I love the big orange ones, but the little blue damsels, I just think are just little, I don't know, little jewels. I think your next book, Chris, might be Magical Insects. That's not a bad idea. Susan could draw those. Yes. <laughs> so Susan, do you have a garden where you get to things that you cook? I live in New York City, so I don't have a garden. I mean, I've had a few experiences where I've had some outdoor space and I've had a garden and I do really love it. And that's one thing I would like to live in the country for. But now I have Chris's garden and I get to be inspired by that. So I'm always collecting rose petals and then Susan makes them into soaps and oils and stuff. So I'm always collecting stuff from the garden and then mailing it to Susan in New York. When you draw a flower, like being inspired by nature is this kind of indoor way to just really experience nature. It's kind of crazy, but you're seeing the textures and the shapes and the way things grow. And it's really, when you draw something that you really like understand it and learn it. So it's a really beautiful experience. And, and I feel like the action of doing our book has been the mindfulness that we talk about in our book 
purpose is gardening. And I feel like I'm not growing the herbs, but I'm learning them in that way from looking at them and drawing and observing. Oh, yeah. When you're forced to really like focus on something like that, I feel like Susan knows plants in a way better than I do visually, just because she spends so much time focused on them and and creating them in art. Yeah, you're accessing it in a different way. Yeah. So really hyper-focused in on all the detail, which casual gardener might not be. I know I'm probably not. I'm, I'm more of, you know, look at things. Oh, this is pretty. And how does it behave? And does it need water? But I'm not like looking at the, the underside of the leaf all the time. Sometimes I do. I do have a phone app that I use almost daily to help me identify things I'm I'm not familiar with. So is it a good one? It is. I found one that I didn't love. Well, this one's called Picture This. I'll do a little advertisement for them. This is not sponsored. It's worth it to pay for it. Yeah, because the free one's not, it doesn't work very well. I use these things all the time. I mean, daily. And I have learned so much since I got this app. Oh my gosh, my knowledge has just increased tenfold about all this stuff around me. And it's just really important to know what you're dealing with. And then you can look things up and, and read about them and stuff and learn their properties. But it's nice to have that in the field with you. Yes. I kind of a little, unfortunately, it makes me feel like I should have my phone with me all the time, which bugs me sort of. Yeah, because then you have to resist the urge to check your messages. Yeah. And sure enough, if I go out in the garden, I'm going to leave my phone here. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to be like device free. And then I go out there and there'll be some incredible thing or some you know beautiful shot of a bee or a butterfly or something. Susan. Can you tell us about what it's like being a green witch in the city, in New York City? Well, I think you can find nature anywhere. And I think that that's the thing that we're also trying to teach people is not necessarily what you're saying about noticing things more, noticing everything more. So there's plenty of farmers markets and there's museums and there's bookstores and there's so many ways to access things that you're interested. And you have great, there's some great botanical gardens in New York. Like the Brooklyn Botanical Garden is just incredible. It is. It is. I used to spend so much time there. And then now you've got the High Line, that park that runs the whole length of the city that's, I think, all planted with natives. That's pretty incredible, too. Like New York's a lot greener than when I used to live there, I will say. A lot greener. Yeah, they've added way more green. And Little Island. I love Little Island. Oh, you know, have you heard of the writer Doug Ptolemy? No. He writes about creating spaces with native gardens. And he talked in this book, Nature's Best Hope, and he talks about that high line in New York. It's incredible. He, he says it's, there's an amazing amount of, of life up there. I don't really understand what it is. Well, you know what it is? It's the old, there used to be raised railroad tracks that brought the railroad into the city. And then they would drop off stuff at factories or warehouses along the side of the Manhattan. And it was just abandoned for years and years and years. And it was untouched. So if things grew there, it was totally, you know... Like you said, something that was untouched and not disturbed. Yeah. And so, and it was unaccessible to the people of New York, but there was this green space, you know, 50 feet up above everybody. And so somebody who's a friend of a friend, actually, I found out, got an idea to turn that into green space. It's huge. It runs almost the entire length of the island. It's, It's incredible. But I don't think you have to be in nature to be inspired by nature or to to get nature. You There's a lot of ways to do it. 
that's spoken like a true city person, but. No, it's so important though, because, you know, people, you know, maybe they might listen to these things and feel like they're left out, you know, because, you know, somebody might live in the middle of Manhattan. No, because I, I say you can always grow on your windowsill or on your fire escape. Don't crowd your fire escape up, up too much that people can't get out. But if you've got a balcony or something, you can do a lot with containers. You just have to remember with container gardening that you've really got to stay on top of it in terms of keeping them you know, moist. True. Susan, do you ever get into Central Park? Central Park. I like the architecture a lot in Central Park, actually. I like there's a, the boat basin and the the landscape and a lot of the things there. I mean, I don't live near Central Park, so I'm more apt to go to the parks on the East River or on the West Side. Since you've moved, there's parks on both sides, so that would be closer to me. I don't get to Central Park that much. When I go to the Met and when I go uptown, there's plenty of green spaces downtown as well. What park, Chris? Tompkins Square Park. That's in the East Village where Susan is. Are there any places you can forage or is that something you do or? No, but it's, I guess, um, more when I visited upstate New York and everything like that, you can do more of that. And I have like Queen Anne's Lace that's in our book and, and some things like that. But I mean, there's a whole culture with the farmer's market here that you've got all these farmers that are passionate about what they do and the Catskills in upstate New York. And I would be part of that community more, not necessarily being a grower are doing it, being sort of more um, focused on what they're the, you know, the, the products that they're making. I experience nature in that way. Getting back to y'all's book, we've been talking all about it and sort of all around it. But how do you all think this book can bring healing to the world? Well, we look at it as, as something that enhances people's life. We want people to kind of notice the small things and really be able to stop and smell the roses when they can and really appreciate nature that's in their lives. Yeah. I mean, the nature that's in their life or the nature that's in their fridge, you know, because there's stuff that you have in your kitchen and your spice rack and the veggies and the veggie drawer. Become more tuned to these kind of things and to notice them more. Yeah. And just to sort of ground yourself in doing things like even the act of cooking, I say, you know, think of your spatula as your wand, lay out your things in a beautiful way that grounds you and soothes you. You know, when you're cooking, make it kind of a ritual that's pleasant for you as well as for the people that are going to get to eat your goodies. Like a Japanese tea ceremony, have these rituals calm you and relax you, lighting candles, lighting incense be able to calm yourself and relax yourself, enhance your life that way. Yeah, I think if everybody can ground themselves, especially with the intention of love, I think that's a good thing for the world because I feel like there's a lot of hate and negative energy out in the world right now. So the more we can do to create kind of a loving atmosphere, I think the better. They've got this book that introduces people to the loving properties and other types of properties of these plants that are all around us, these common things that most people are very familiar with, but, you know, they don't see it in that way. So it's re it really opens up our consciousness, I think. I think it's just a, a beautiful idea. Yes. We see this book as something that you want to keep on your bedside table and you want to be inspired by the illustrations and the content and have it make you feel good and have be, be a special little jewel you refer to. Yeah, we see it, we see it as a bedside book. 
And also sounds like a, a book to have in your kitchen as well. <laughs> yeah, there's good stuff for the kitchen. <laughs> so Chris and Susan, you can both answer this or one of you can take it however you want. But we want to know what does slow living mean to you? Oh, well, I think it has like, I think it has a lot to do with mindfulness. For me, I think it's about not throwing that frozen dinner in the microwave and actually spending the time, if you can, Ideally, harvest your ingredients because I did make a pesto earlier in the week and I used some fresh basil and that was actually a really good feeling. And you can get it pre-made, but I think when you slow down and actually cook the things and compile the things... I think it's really grounding and really good for you. That's that's what I think of. I mean, I when I think of the slow movement, my first thought goes to eating. <laughs> well, I was exposed to the slow food movement in Italy at least 20 years ago and when it first started. And I was really fascinated with it. You know, a return back to appreciating the smaller things in life, to appreciating everything. And with food the same way, the more it takes to create it, the more time you spend in it, the more you digest it and understand it and slow down and go back to these times where people really enjoyed their food and their day and being with people. It's a self-care and that's where the mindfulness for me just is like a huge component. So it was really interesting that it was just started in Italy around that time. And, you know, making things for yourself, making things by hand, making your own it was presented to me by this man who was making their own mortadella and their own, you know, sausages and things like that. Like it's from the whole soup to nuts kind of movement. And I think that it makes you appreciate the food and life more. Yeah. Yes, we agree. What would you guys say in a nutshell? What would your answer be? Oh, you know, Chris, you're the only person that's ever flipped that question back to us. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a book, The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living, and we open that up with it's all about paying attention to how you spend your time, your money and your resources. And for me, that's the fundamental of it. You just pay attention. You become conscious. I'm going to use that. Pay attention. That's a really great way to look because that's what we're trying to say. But I didn't say it like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, good. So, Emma, what does it mean to you? We'll flip it to you. I agree. I think it's paying attention. And how that shows up for me specifically is how I want to feel in a moment. So paying attention to how things make me feel and then choosing things that feel good. We think we have to do things a certain way or we need to spend time like this or spend time with this person. And when we're not slow living, we don't realize we're not seeing how that feels. So for me, it's a lot of being really in tune with how I'm feeling and then choosing feeling better. And then that's feeling good in your life. So I love that. Yeah. I mean, being present. I mean, we don't say that enough, Chris. That's what we're really saying. Just be present so you can taste this delicious tomato. Or you can enjoy this moment with your friend. You know, if you're not present and you're thinking on, like Emma was just saying about the next thing and what's before and what's after, you know, enjoy that. Don't let your life pass you by. Yeah, I just got a book that's basically trying to tell you to stop thinking less, that you're not your thoughts. Try not to latch on to something, you know, and obsess over it because then you're losing the current moment. Yes. And our life is just a string of moments, you know, like a little pearl necklace. Each one is individual. And, you know, those pearls 
all connected today represent a, a string of being worried or busy or, you know, looking to the next thing or in a hurry? Or do, does that string represent little pearls of enjoyment, of flavor, using your senses, visual appreciation, like, the, you know, the food, you know, you're talking about Chris a minute ago about, uh, you know, working with things in the kitchen and how it is an experience. All the senses, you know. All the senses, yeah. Smell, taste, you know, the, the way things look, yeah. The way things feel. Yes, that's wonderful. So another question we ask all of our guests is, what does good dirt mean to you? And you can answer that any way that comes to mind. Good dirt means a lot of good compost. <laughs> a lot of poop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what I think when I think of good dirt. <laughs> What about you, Susan? To me, it means getting your hands dirty. You know what I mean? Whatever that is. And and I think that because I feel like I'm a little stumped on the nature question with you. And I feel like, you know, I do ceramics and it's like handling clay and, and handling paints and handling food and, and really getting in there and, and getting your hands dirty and really experiencing it all. Absolutely. Yes. Nature, you know, we are nature. You don't have to go to nature, or connect with nature. We are nature. It's really just a way of you know, opening up our eyes to it and opening up our senses to it. You actually can't get away from it, you know? Yeah. So much talk about reconnecting to nature when really we already are. We already are. I know we forget that. So before we sign off for today, what would you like to leave the audience with? What do you want the audience to understand about what you're doing or the book? Well, I'd love you, the audience, to follow us on our Instagram and TikTok at Two Green Witches. We're doing, and that's the number two, Green Witches. We're doing lots of videos, plant videos with Chris and things about our book. You could really learn more about us. And we'd also love you to buy our book. Yeah, we hope, we hope you love the book as much as we do. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us on. It's been so fun. Yeah, it's been so fun to talk to you guys. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, I loved it. Such a fun topic. And I think our audience will really, really love your book. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. And now I want some strawberry basil lemonade drink. Yeah, go make that. Bye. Have a great rest of your day and we'll be in touch. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at We Are Lady Farmer. That's We Are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye. <laughs>